with the Almighty's unending kindness and love, we begin a brand new book, the book of Shemos, the book of Exodus, the book of Redemption, the book that begins, of course, with the enslavement and the subjugation of the Jewish people in Egypt, but it continues with the miraculous Exodus and the momentous revelation at Sinai, and it climaxes with the inauguration of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, and the Almighty being in our midst. The book starts off bad. It gets even worse for the Jewish people before it gets better. But this book is the story of the building blocks of the Almighty's people. Genesis, the book that we, with the help of the Almighty, just finished, that was the story of the fashioning of a glorious family. That family was installed in Egypt, and now that family is going to burgeon and grow and mature into a glorious nation. But as the Almighty promised Abraham, there's going to be a training regimen that's needed. We're going to have to go through the iron crucible of Egypt. We're going to have to be enslaved and tormented. We're going to have to be broken down, broken completely to be remade into the people that can be rebuilt into the kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the book starts off with the enslavement. and chapter 2, we read about the birth and the maturation of Moshe. And Moshe ends up in Midian, and he is instructed to go save the nation. We're going to read about the templates, of course, and the miraculous exodus. And that's going to begin the period of the 40 years in the wilderness, where the nation is going to be living in this miraculous cocoon of holiness. We're going to read about the revelation at Sinai, and the book will end with five Parsha sections on the building of the tabernacle, the mini portable temple. And I'm so excited to study this, to embark upon this journey with y'all. I'm at the Torch Center here in Houston, Texas. It's a lovely day today. I hope y'all are doing well. As always, my email address is rabbywallbygym.com. List to some of the other podcasts that we have from the Torch Center. I think it's like 15 different shows now from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. Let's begin. Now, our parsha is very interesting for a whole host of reasons. It's one of the parshios that I look forward to every year. I noticed something this year as I was reading through the Parsha that if you try to imagine what it was like for the nation when they were experiencing what we read about, the nation got a very different experience than what we read. If you think about it from the perspective of the people, our Parsha, it just starts off bad and gets worse progressively and it becomes completely unbearable. They are a family that grew into a nation, and they have, of course, the legacy of Joseph, but the new Pharaoh doesn't recognize, doesn't remember Joseph, and they are deceived and eventually enslaved and oppressed and tormented. They're forced to build cities with back-breaking labor, and things get worse. Pharaoh is very paranoid, and he starts killing or tries to kill the Jewish male babies. And then he instructs in a fit of paranoia that all the babies be thrown into the river. And we read in the Talmud how the leader of the Jews, Amram, he said this is just not an environment that we can have families. And he divorced his wife. And everyone else says, well, if Amram divorces his wife, we're going to divorce ours. And then his daughter Miriam, Amram's daughter Miriam, she went to him and she told him, well, you're worse than Pharaoh. Pharaoh only wants to kill the Jewish males. By separating husband and wife, you're causing that there's no Jewish males and no Jewish females. You're worse. So he remarried his wife and they did as well. And Amram and his wife, Yocheved, the daughter of Levi, they bore a son. But this son was hidden for a couple of months 
and then had to be abandoned. This son, the scion of Levi, is adopted, is taken by the daughter of Pharaoh. It's a total disaster. And things just go from bad to worse. That son has to flee the country. He has to escape murder charges after killing an Egyptian, an Egyptian man who was striking a Hebrew man. And then we read about the horrific escalation of their suffering, and that is captured by Pharaoh getting stricken with Tsaras, with a, a skin ailment. And to remedy it, he has to bathe, or he chooses to bathe in a bath of the blood of slain Jewish babies, 150 in the morning and 150 in the evening. And the Jewish people, with no hope, just cry out to God. But there's no salvation, apparently, for them on the horizon. Unbeknownst to them, of course, God hears their cries and proceeds with their salvation. Now, from the perspective of the Jewish people, they're not aware of Moshe and Midian and Jethro and the burning bush and the seven days of negotiation and objections. They're not aware of any of that. But sometime later, decades after this unusual boy, Moshe, the son of Amram, the younger brother of Aaron and Miriam, after he disappeared, decades later, he shows up and he pledges to go to Pharaoh and to persuade him, to convince him, to encourage him to release the Jewish people. And everyone's fired up, and they all begin their defiant march to the palace to demand the release of the Jews. And slowly the marchers drop out. And by the time Moshe arrives at the palace gates, it's just him and Aaron. And when Moshe and Aaron present their case to Pharaoh, instead of Pharaoh agreeing to improve the state of the nation, He exacerbates their circumstances. And he withholds critical ingredients of bricks from them, but not easing up on the daily quota of bricks that he expects from the people. So from the perspective of the masses of Hebrew, of Jewish slaves, this parsha details the awful straits of the nation. It starts off pretty poor, and it just gets worse from there on out. Now, when we read the Parsha, we see a completely different story. For us, from the very beginning, we see the roots of the redemption, the roots of the salvation. The Ramban tells us that this whole book, the book of Shmos, is also called Sefer Hagu'ula, the book of redemption. From the very beginning, The whole story is one of redemption, and the seeds are planted in chapter 1. God always prepares the remedy ahead of time, before the malady is even placed upon the Jewish people. God already lays out the remedy. We already know from the book of, of Genesis, of course, the people who are enslaved, maybe they're not aware of this. Chapter 15 of Genesis, when God promised Abraham that you should surely know that your descendants will be foreigners in a foreign land and they'll be enslaved and tormented and oppressed by a foreign ruler. And they'll be there for 400 years and then they will leave with great wealth. Ahead of time, it's already been established. It's already been set in stone that the Jewish people will leave with great wealth. But in chapter 1, we read about these brave midwives. Rashi tells us that these two midwives, Shifra and Pua, they are none other than Miriam and Yocheved, Moshe and Aaron's mother and sister. The king, Pharaoh, instructed these women, your midwives, you're there by the birth. If it's a baby boy, kill him. If it's a baby girl, Let her live. And these women, they fear God. And they did not hearken, they did not listen to the words of the king of Egypt. And not only did they not kill the babies, they did whatever they can to give them life, to boost them, to strengthen them. And then Pharaoh was disappointed that the numbers, the demographics of what's happening here. 
and he summons these women. And they are demanded, give us an explanation. Why are you allowing these babies to live? And they respond, well, (laughs) these Jewish women, Jewish women, they're not the Egyptian women. They're like animals. And just like animals, you don't need to have a midwife, a doula present. We come, we show up, the baby's already born. We cannot fulfill your plan of infanticide. And the Torah tells us what happens. What's the consequence of the bravery of these midwives? First of all, God did good to them. And the nation burgeoned. They were invested in the growth of the nation. And the Almighty says, okay, I'm going to make sure the nation grows and proliferates and procreates in a prolific fashion. And then verse 21 we read, these midwives, they feared God. The Almighty rewarded them. And he made for them houses. He made them houses. What does that mean? Rashi tells us that the Almighty apportioned for them the three houses, the three offices of power and influence in the nation. There are three different offices of leadership amongst our nation. The house of the priesthood, the house of the Levites, and the house of the kingdom. And all these three were given to these women their children, their descendants, they're going to be the families, the houses, the offices, the office holders of these three positions of leadership. And of course, we know the king of the Jewish people is going to be Moshe. And the priest, the high priest of the nation is going to be Aaron. And they are the children of Yochevet, the saviors of the nation. The people that are going to be at the helm of the nation, when the nation is going to be saved, they are already designated many decades prior to the Exodus, ahead of time, in the merit of these brave midwives, the ground is being laid for the redemption at the very beginning of the book. Now, chapter 2, we read about Moshe's birth and very unusual childhood. His mother hides him for three months. When she can no longer hide him, she does something brave or crazy, depending on how you uh, see it. She puts him in a sealed wicker box. The authorities are coming looking for the babies, and they know that uh, there's maybe a reason to Expect this family, the family of Amram and Yocheved, they have a baby. With no choice, she takes her three-month-old son, puts him in this waterproof box, and allows it to float on the river. And then Pharaoh's daughter comes, and she wants to take a bath. She wants to immerse herself in the water. And she sees the box, and she stretches out her hand, And she grabs it and she adopts Moshe. In a twist of fate, Moshe is actually raised by his biological mother because he refuses to suckle, to nurse from any of the Egyptian wet nurses. And Miriam, Moshe's older sister, she intervenes and she says, well, maybe I could bring you a Hebrew wet nurse. So he's actually raised by his biological mother. But once he was weaned, He was given back to Pharaoh's daughter, and he was raised as a prince in Egypt. Now, the sages and the commentaries note that this is not a coincidence. Moshe, the greatest Jew of all time, the greatest human of all time, the only person who's going to be able to go up to heaven and get the Torah and negotiate with the angels and strike the rock to emit water and to bring us the manna and to orchestrate and oversee and coordinate the exodus, The fact that he was raised in this very unusual fashion, that is not a coincidence. He needed to be raised as a prince. He needed to be raised away from his people. Only such an unusual background, childhood, 
can prepare him and can give him what he needs to be able to save the nation. So, for example, the commentaries point out at the end of Genesis, Joseph tells the Jewish people a special code phrase that the Savior of the Jews will say. Now, the problem is, is that if everyone knows this code phrase, then the person who deploys it, the person who uses this code phrase, you could say, well, you're not saying it because God told it to you. You're saying it because you happen to have grown up and you were expecting someone to say that. So if the Redeemer of the Jewish people was homegrown, if he grew up amongst his brethren, well, then his foreknowledge of that code phrase would remove any any power of him uttering it. Well, Moshe was not homegrown, and he comes, and he's almost 80 years old. Out of nowhere, we, we kind of lost track of him. He was you know, raised by his mother for maybe a year or two. And that's it. He shows up for one day, a second day, and then he has to flee. So for decades, Moshe is gone. We know his story. We're following his story with Midian and daughters of Jethro and as a shepherd and the burning bush. We know what happened to him. The Jewish people have no idea. He shows up. He's 80 years old and he drops the bomb. He drops the special code phrase. And now he has some credibility. But besides for that, the fact that Moshe was raised as a prince, as royalty, as a person of immense power, as a person who is in the halls of power, that gives him an indispensable quality that he's going to need to lead the nation. There's an amazing Ibn Ezra. This is in chapter 2, verse 3 of our book. He says something wonderful. The Almighty's plans are always very deep and profound. And we can't really fathom what the Almighty is really planning. And then he speculates, maybe, maybe the Almighty orchestrated it that Moshe should grow up in the palace so that he has the disposition of a prince. He has the attitude of a person of power. He has the stature and the distinction and the status of an important person, of a person who carries weight, and he has that ingrained in him from the very beginning. Moshe is not someone who is meek, who is timid. He is accustomed to to stature. He's well-trained in matters of greatness. It's important that Moshe is going to be the leader of the Jewish people. He shouldn't be a lowly person, a depressed person, a person lacking confidence, a person who grew up as a slave and was systematically oppressed. Moshe needs to have strength. He needs to have confidence. He needs to have panache. He needs to have the ability to be a risk taker. Only someone like that can lead the nation. And the Almighty orchestrated it that Moshe was given the background to be able to have those qualities. He comes out the first day as an adult, and he goes to inspect on the Jewish people, on the slaves, and he sees an Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man of his fellows. What does he do? Right away, he takes action. And he's able to kill the Egyptian because he was behaving in a criminal fashion. And again, he saves the daughter of Jethro. He takes initiative. He's, he's brave. He's bold. He's fearless. Moshe has a degree of bravado, of braggadociousness. He has panache. Where does he get that from? Says the Ibn Ezra, maybe that's why the Almighty made him grow up as a prince. He needed those training grounds to be able to be this great leader. He had to have a rich, a powerful person's attitude 
in order to be the great leader of the nation. This is all part of the grand plan. He was given the strength, the bravery, when he grew up in the palace. Then the Ibn Ezra adds another idea. He says, well, if Moshe grew up amongst the Jews, it would be very hard for them to take him seriously. Had they known him since he was a kid, they would have familiarity with him, and they would consider him, he's just one of the boys. He's one of the boys. It's it's hard to accurately judge those who you grew up with. It, it kind of clouds your impartiality. The people you grew up with, it's hard for us to view them as, you know, in, in a different light, as giants, as titans. It would be hard for the nation to accept Moshe if they remember him as, oh, I remember as a kid, I was in his class, he was nothing special. Maybe he's a little talented, a little precocious, yes. But it's really hard to submit to the leadership of someone that you grew up with. And again, the Almighty's positioning Moshe for what it takes to lead the nation. Now, Moshe has some uncommon qualities, as we can evidently see. He grows up, and right away, he goes to check up on his brothers. He goes out to see the suffering of his brethren. And the Midrash tells us this is why he married a prophecy. He left his perch as a prince, and he went out to talk with the small people, with the enslaved masses, with the lowly people. He lowered himself to their level. God says, you lowered yourself. I will do the same to you. I will leave my heavenly perch, and I'll talk to you. Moshe is unable to stand idly when he sees injustice. The Egyptian man who strikes the Hebrew man, Moshe kills him and buries him in the sand. The next day, Moshe intervenes when he sees two Hebrews scuffling. Narcissus tells us that this is none other than the two rabble-rousers, Dathan and Abiram, Dustin and Abiram. And when Moshe tries to intervene, they say to Moshe, who put you in charge? Who rendered you as a man? Rashi tells us, you're just a youth. You're not in charge. I think this does show us the difference, or this does sharpen for us the contrast between Moshe and the masses. They viewed leadership as something you have to get appointed to. Who appointed you? Who made you in charge? And who, who did, in fact, make Moshe in charge? Why was he intervening in a matter that's really not any of his business? Well, Moshe was someone that took initiative. He didn't sit idly when he thought something was, was wrong. When he saw something that was corrupt, that was unjust, he right away intervened. And he had the confidence to do so. The Jewish people, on the other hand, the masses, they, they were depressed. They were downtrodden. They were marginalized. Their true abilities, their greatness, was not allowed to shine. They didn't have the, the flexibility and the environment where they could feel confident to take initiative. But Moshe grew up as a prince. He had confidence and he had boldness and verve. And he takes initiative. And he's comfortable to stand up for what was right, even without being formally appointed. Even with strangers, Moshe has the confidence, the panache, to speak his mind. The Jews had reached the point where they, they told Moshe, who, who appointed you? Who made you in charge? Now, these two, they reveal what happened the previous day, and Moshe is placed on trial, and he has to escape to Midian, and there he marries, and he spends many decades tending to flock. The Midrash tells us that this, too, was part of the training of Moshe. His destiny was to lead the nation like a trustworthy shepherd. And Moshe got some reps first with the flock of Jethro. And the Midrash tells us that Moshe was inspected, was tested, first 
with the flock of Jethro before he was given the flock of the Jewish people. And it tells us a story, this really sweet story of Moshe. He was leading the flock of Jethro in the wilderness. And a kid, a baby goat, escaped. And Moshe chased after it. And the goat arrived to this oasis that had some water and started drinking. And Moshe, after chasing down the goat, he says, Oh, I didn't know that you were thirsty. You must be tired. And he lifted the goat and placed the goat on his shoulders and started walking back. Says the Almighty, look at this person. Look at Moshe. Look at the delicateness of character that he has. Look at the mercy that he is displaying. Not even with humans, with with sheep. He has the qualities to be the shepherd of the Jewish people. Moshe, again, is being presented with the kind of training and the kind of qualities and exposure that he would need to go lead the nation sometime later. Now, we also see that Moshe Moshe had to experience some dynamism. He was not stagnant. He was not complacent. He had a tumultuous childhood where he was a prince and he was in Egypt. And then he had to flee and he had to kind of be in a different environment. And that's always the grounds to level up as a person, as we know. When you leave your background, you go to the unknown, just like Abraham before him. You leave, you abandon your hometown, your place where you grew up, the place where you're, where you're comfortable. That's always an opportunity to leave your childhood and your immaturity and your previous sense of, of who you are, what your limitations are. Leave it all behind. He arrives in Midian. Of course, as we mentioned earlier, he's again pitching fights, but these are not the kinds of fights that are problematic. These are righteous battles. Defending the defenseless. Protecting the innocent. Saving the vulnerable girls, the daughters of Jethro, from their assailants. Moshe's panache is present again. And we read about the expanded episode of the burning bush. Moshe is selected. And after a series of objections, agrees to go, go save the Jewish people. And he arrives out of nowhere, and he mobilizes the leaders of the people to action. And they begin a march to the palace. And the message that they're going to convey to Pharaoh is fierce. God tells him, I want you to tell Pharaoh, demand of him to release the nation. And if not, I will kill your oldest son. This is a pretty, shall we say, combative message. Imagine what kind of chutzpah you need to tell a totalitarian autocrat, the most powerful person in the world, if you don't listen to me, I'm going to kill your firstborn. This is temerity. This is panache. This is fearlessness. This is the boldness of a leader. Now, chapter 5, we read about how Moshe and Aaron go to Pharaoh. Initially, it was Moshe and Aaron and all the leaders. Rashi tells us that those other leaders, they slunk away in fear. Maybe they were initially eager to go and to go demand the release of the Jewish people. They got close. And only, only Moshe and Aaron were brave enough to barge in and demand that Pharaoh release the Hebrews. Again, we see the quality of leadership. Being willing to do things that maybe carry with it some risk, some danger. Moshe does it. Aaron does it. These are leaders. 
Now, although the initial petition fails to gain the nation's release, and in truth, their situation deteriorated, the truth is, we mentioned this in the past, I believe, the fact that Pharaoh did not release them and instead exacerbated their circumstances and withheld from them the critical ingredients of the bricks. We know that God told Abraham that his descendants are going to be enslaved for 400 years. In truth, the Jews were only enslaved in Egypt for 210 years. So Satan tell us that the fact that when Moshe initially came to the Jewish people, things got worse, the enslavement intensified, that achieved the aim of compressing the final 190 years that they had to be in Egypt into just a few months of brutally intense servitude. So the grand scheme of things, the intensification of the servitude was actually another step in the direction of the redemption. So it's really interesting when we read our parsha, you know, for the Jewish people, it's just a story of bad to worse to absolutely unbearably awful. But from the perspective of God, from the perspective of the Torah, every part of the story, it's one of redemption. You have the preparation of Moshe, the houses that Moshe's relatives earned on his behalf. And we have the training of Moshe and the positioning of Moshe for giving him what he needs to lead the people out of their servitude, laying the ground for the grand exodus. Moshe is armed with the tools that he needs to save the nation. Of course, chief among them is his indefatigable panache and bravado, the quality of a leader who doesn't just sit idly, who takes initiative and is fearless. Now, we can also speculate that the, uh, as they say, the apple does not fall far from the tree. If you think about it, what does his mother do? Three months are up. I have to do something with my kid. Such a crazy situation for a parent to be placed in. What does she demonstrate? She demonstrates the same quality. Comes up with this bonkers plan to place Moshe in a, in a floating bassinet, being bold and being fearless and not being weakened by impossible odds, the bravado of a leader that's already present in his mother. So I think we're getting a picture of what Moshe was composed of. What is the, what are the qualities that made up this great lead of Jewish people? Moshe is being prepared in our parsha. We don't see the fruits of it till next week. But the seeds are present here. Moshe is being prepared for his critical role in spearheading the Exodus. And even though the nation cannot sense it, they cannot perceive it, everything is getting into place. Everything is aligning for their redemption. I want to take this a step further. Miriam and Yochavet, Shifra and Pua, as they are called, they're very brave. Pharaoh gives them a direct order. Kill the boys, save the girls, and these women, these midwives, disobey. Not only that, they don't kill the boys, but they go to the opposite extreme. They provide life for the babies. And Pharaoh summons them and demands an explanation. And they say, well, these women, they're like animals. They don't need a doula. They don't need a midwife. By the time we arrive, the babies are all born. And these women are rewarded for their bravery, for their fear of heaven. And they're given houses. What houses? 
Are these uh, French colonial houses? What houses? So Rashi tells us three houses. The houses, the offices of leadership. The house of the Kohen, the house of the Levite, and the house of the king. Now here's the observation. Those houses, those offices, have we ever heard about them before? When, uh, where do we hear about these houses previously? Well, it was just, it was just last week. Chapter 49 of the book of Genesis, in the blessing of Reuven, of Reuben, he's told, you're my firstborn, the first of my strength, my initial vigor. You were supposed to have power. You were supposed to have might. What does Rashi say? You're the firstborn. You were supposed to have the priesthood. You were supposed to have the monarchy. If you look at the translation of the Unculus, he adds another thing. You were supposed to be the firstborn. You were supposed to have the birthright. And we know that the Levites were swapped with the firstborn. So there's an amazing theme here. Reuben lost three houses. The house of the firstborn slash Levite-ism, the house of the Kohen, of the priesthood, and the house of the monarchy. And these three houses, these three offices that Ruvain lost, those midwives, Shifra and Pua, Yocheved and Miriam, gained. Now he lost it because he intervened in Jacob's sleeping arrangement. He pulled the primary bed from the tent of Billah to the tent of his mother Leah. And he lost those houses. And what he lost, these women Acquired. Evidently, these women are the opposite of Ruvain. They gained what he lost. Why? What about these women demonstrate the opposite of what Ruvain did? Now, what's really interesting about this is that, you know, we talked about this primary or a primary element of leadership is the quality of being bold and brave and taking action and not just to sit around and wait for someone else to take care of things. Taking initiative, being bold, being fearless, doing things. That is a primary component of leadership. And Moshe displays it again and again. Of course, he was positioned for it as well. But if you look at Ruvain, he seems to fit the bill. He is not pleased with the fact that his mother's being mistreated, in his opinion. Rachel dies and Jacob takes his primary residence and moves it from the house, from the tent of Rachel to the tent of Billah. Now, Leah was a primary wife. Billa was a secondary wife. He thought this was an affront to his mother. And like a leader, you would imagine, he takes initiative. He does something. He doesn't just sit around and hope someone else will improve it. Ruvain, as well we know earlier in the Torah, when his mother had four sons and she ceased Bearing any more children. This is in Parshas Vayetze. Reuven went out to the field. He didn't just sit around. He went out to the field. And he found those dudaim, those special herbs believed to enhance fertility. And he got it for his mother. Again, we see the quality of taking action, of taking initiative. If you read that and said, what's, what's the difference? Reuven has what it takes. He seems to have this grand quality of leadership. The jumbling of the bed that disqualified him from leadership, we can argue that's an action of great boldness, of panache, as we like to say. Yet for that, he was booted. 
from the leadership. I think this brings us to the second principle. We could say that Ruvain took repeated steps to advance the agenda of his mother. His mother ceases to have children, and he searches. He's going to find those dudaim, those aphrodisiacs for his mother. He is pro-life, pro-creation, pro-natalism for his mother. For his mother, yes, but not for Rachel. He wanted his mother to have more time with Jacob. He wanted Leah and not the other wives. So he removes the bed from the tent of Bilam, places it in Leah's tent. He had panache, we can say. He had the quality of being a prince, of believing in himself, of doing things when others were docile. But he was selective in what he used it for. He wanted one particular wing of the family to thrive, to grow. For the others, he didn't really care for the others. So he had some of the qualities of leadership, but not all, and therefore he he lost those three houses. By contrast, these women, they're aggressive, they're bold, they're fearless. They are risk takers. They're willing to endanger themselves but it's all for the benefit of others. They weren't selective. They were willing to risk everything so that the Jewish people in general grow. Ruvain was willing to risk a lot so that the family of Leah would grow. And that's why he's not a candidate to lead the whole nation. But they, they are. They are worthy of earning those houses that he lost. We talk about panache and initiative taking and being aggressive, and that's very important. But an indispensable element of leadership is that it has to be directed outward towards other people. And that's why Ruvain lost it, and these women secured it those houses, those offices. They earned it. If you look at Moshe, Moshe is someone who doesn't uh, just sit around. He takes action. He's a leader. But you'll notice, in every instance that he takes initiative, it's always for the benefit of others. He is a prince. He could stay in the ivory tower of the palace and live a life of luxury while other people are suffering. And Moshe goes out. He goes out to see the state of his brethren, to commiserate with them. And then he sees an Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man of his fellow, and he could very easily just say, yeah, not my my problem. But what does he do? He stops this crime, and he punishes the perpetrator. The next day, he does the same thing. He intervenes when the two Hebrews are fighting. And for that, he is almost killed. And he has to escape. And he arrives in Midian. And again, he takes initiative to save the daughters of Jethro from their oppressors. Moshe is a prince. He has the bravado and the braggadociousness and the panache. But he is deploying it for others. And then God says, okay, you're my man. Burning bush! Moshe, go save the Jewish people! I'm going to give you, here's the crown! Wear it! You're deserving of it. And suddenly Moshe becomes diffident. And he objects again and again and again and again! Multiple objections. A whole series of objections. Where's that panache that you told me about? Where's that leadership? Where's that boldness? Where's that confidence and belief in your... Where's that? Moshe has supreme confidence. Moshe takes action. Moshe believes in himself. Moshe has verve and vigor and panache. I really enjoy that word. I'm going to say it over again. Panache. 
even though it doesn't quite mean what I'm using it to mean, you'll forgive me. I like the word. What can I say? In the Parsha podcast, I'm, I'm just acquiring that word. I'm appropriating that word to mean what I want it to mean. It's close enough. Moshe has the boldness. And somehow, God says, okay, you're in charge. You're my representative. You're my emissary. Suddenly, Moshe says, well, well, what am I going to say? How am I going to tell Pharaoh? What's, what's your name? What's going to be? Send Aaron. Moshe is the model of the great leader. He doesn't want it for himself. He does have this quality, this tremendous quality of being a prince. But when it comes to himself, to his own honor, to his own career, to his own advancement, he's not going to use it. He's the consummate shepherd committed to caring for others exclusively. For others, he's willing to endanger himself completely for himself. Nope, not interested. For seven days, the Almighty and Moshe discussed this until finally Moshe relents and goes to save the Jewish people. That's also interesting. We pointed this out in the rebroadcast as well. The verse in chapter 5, verse 14, talks about the Jewish officers who were struck when their underlings were not able to produce sufficient bricks. Rashi tells us that these officers, they had a very bright future. They became the leaders of the Jewish people. Moshe was told to go select 70 elders. This is the first Sanhedrin, the first governing body of the Jewish people. Who did he select? He selected those officers. Again, the qualities of leadership that are required are selflessness and empathy and willing to suffer on behalf of your constituents. Moshe was bold. He was a prince. He did have that wonderful quality of panache. But this without that is insufficient. You need the boldness. You need the capacity to act like a prince, to be fearless. Panache is king. But to be a leader, it has to be properly targeted. When that fearlessness is directed for the benefit of others, then you are deserving of those houses. Then you are worthy of leading the Almighty's flock. So I think there are some lessons of what we discussed today that could be very beneficial for us. This Parsha is a tale of two stories. The Jewish people, it's just a unrelenting seriatim of suffering. When we read it in the Torah, we read it with Rashi, we read it with the commentaries, with the Talmud, it's a very different experience. Which which version is the accurate story of what happened? The Torah is telling us this is the actual story. And the people, the players involved, they weren't even aware of the real story. The way the Almighty perceives it, the truthful way that this story actually went down, that this time period went down, it's a story of redemption from beginning to end. And this, I think, could be a very helpful thing to keep in the back of our minds. Whenever we're going through something, whenever we're experiencing an unpleasant period, we have to remember that sometimes, or quite likely, perhaps, our story, our suffering, may be very different than the way the Almighty sees it. And we don't know, because we don't have the full picture, The Jewish people, they figured it out 80 years later. But it's a nice idea to remember what we experience, what we undergo in real time, and the way we perceive what's happening to us may be very different than whatever the Almighty is is cooking up for us in heaven on high. Another idea, another very important idea. Jewish people were subjected. 
with all manner of torture, of subjugation in Egypt. But one of the most insidious forms of subjugation was that they were led to believe that that they were slaves, that they weren't capable, that they had nothing going for them, that they had no hope, that they weren't special, they're not princes and princesses. And Moshe's not like that. He's brave, he's confident, he's aggressive, of course, in a targeted fashion. But the Jews as a whole, they were they were meek. They were submissive. When Moshe intervenes in a fight, they say, well, who put you in charge? This is a terrible thing to say. You're descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Descendants of the greatest beacons of light the world's ever seen. You're elevated. You're distinguished. You're important. You're powerful. What happened to this family? They became spiritless and weak-kneed and timid and obsequious and slavishly servile. Now, Moshe, of course, he was deliberately made to be raised in the house of Pharaoh to have that extra confidence and extra spirit. But really, we're all like that. Sometimes we forget. My study partner, Rabbi Byron, he showed me an incredible midrash. An unbelievable midrash. I hope to go through this midrash at length sometime in the future. It tells a parable of a princess. Somehow, she was lost to her family and she ended up having to beg and to gather the little scraps of food like a beggar. And one day, the, the king was riding by and he sees this, this girl. She looks familiar. She's his daughter. Right away he goes and he redeems her. And she's now a princess. And she's sitting in the palace. And she's in the chariot. And all of her friends, who she grew up with on the streets, they can't, they can't believe what happened. What happened to her? And they're, they're incredulous. Yesterday you were with us, picking up scraps of food, trying to collect something, hand to mouth, paycheck to paycheck. Look at you now. You're a princess. You're sitting in the halls of power. How'd this happen? And the princess responds, just as you cannot fathom how this happened, and you're just incredulous to see this transformation, I'm the same way. I'm also incredulous. I have no idea how this happened. That's the parable. That's the analogy. So to the Jewish people, they were in Egypt. And they were enslaved. And they were forced to work with mortar and bricks in in very demeaning jobs, in very base jobs. And they were, were hated and disdained and ashamed, and they, they they were the lowest of the low, the lowest of the spiritual strata. What happened? They were released, and they were redeemed. And they ascended to great heights. They became princes and princesses of the whole world. And the whole world looks at them and says, how did this happen? They were incredulous. Yesterday, you were in Egypt. And you were enslaved, and you were tormented, and you were depressed, and you were oppressed. And you're working with mortar and bricks, the lowest, most menial of jobs. And now you're the masters of the world. How did this happen? Israel will respond, just like you don't know, we don't know. We too can't believe how this happened. But we know the answer. They always were princes and princesses, just like the analogy. The daughter of the king was always the daughter of the king. The circumstances were such that she just forgot about it. That's what things were like in Egypt. It was a whole nation of princes and princesses, with the exception of a few 
the Levites maybe, Moshe, of course, in an outsized way. They were positioned in a way that they just didn't know about it. I think this is an important thing for us to remember. We're the same people. We're the same descendants. We have this this quality coursing within us. And we were placed here to do great things. We can never forget. We come from very choice stock. Never forget that we're princes and princesses. Never fall into despair and depression and any feeling of ineptitude. We have pride. We have greatness. We're the children of the Almighty. And yes, circumstances are not always so pleasant. And it may be surprising to us when we discover what we really have within us. But it's there. And it's latent sometimes. But it's always within us. Something happened yesterday, I have to tell you the story. We're sufficiently deep into the podcast that I know it's not going to get to any of the people involved for more than one reason. It's about my son, Yehoshua. You know, one of the only things that my kids agree upon is that there's almost anything that they prefer to do than to listen to one of these podcasts. And even if they do listen to it, there's no way they're getting this far into the podcast. Most of y'all, of course, probably dropped off already. But my son, uh, he's in eighth grade here in the local school, local yeshiva here. And they have a basketball league where they play other schools. And there's the, the eighth grade has a team and the seventh grade has a team. There are the bolts. I, I had suggested different names. I said, well, don't be the bolts. I said, you could be the wranglers or you could add a whole list of great names that I thought were better. But they went with the Bolts. Okay. But they all have their jerseys and everyone's really proud of it. And Yoshua selected number 17 for obvious reasons. And, you know, last night they were playing um, another school. It was actually a, a group of homeschooled kids. And they had two games back to back. Seventh grade, their seventh grade versus our seventh grade. And their eighth grade versus our eighth grade. Now, I've never gone to any of these games. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't even know there was a thing to go. So I told my son, I said, come on, give me 25 points. Store, store 25 points, which is a lot. You know, I don't think he's ever scored that much. But anyhow, he went, he went for the earlier game, the seventh versus seventh grade game. And I, I kind of forgot about it and it was kind of quiet in the house. And I told, I told my wife, I said, let, let, let's, let's go. Let's, let's, on a, on a whim, we decided to take the little kids and to go to the stool. We get to the stool. The game hasn't started. The, the first game was finished. And our seventh grade boys had lost their seventh grade boys. And the game was about to start. And I told my wife, I said, like, these, these other kids, they're massive. They're huge. There's three kids over six feet tall. And I was kind of assessing the opponents. One of the, one of the kids, one of the opponents, he had like all the, all the gear, all the paraphernalia, the armbands and the sweatbands and the sweatpants and the headbands. I knew he wasn't for real. He's, he's over-accessorized. It's not a good sign. But the other kids look big and strong and it, they look legit. And their seventh grade had beaten our seventh grade. So I was a little worried. But the, the eighth grade game had a very different result. Our team, the Bolts, I think they jumped out to like a 12 nothing lead. And they played great. Aggressive defense and great energy in offense and they hit their shots and jumping the passing lanes and clutch passing. And they absolutely destroyed, eviscerated, shellacked their opponents. Final score was 81 to 35. And Yoshua had just an incredible game. I was like going nuts on the sidelines. Incredible. He had like 35 points. I think he had a double-double, incredible defense, aggressive defense, great passing, heads-up play. And he's also guiding and directing all his teammates where to stand and how to position themselves. Unbelievable game. Best game he's had. But I'm like swelling with pride there on the sidelines. And then one of the people there tells me, he says, it was unbelievable. At the beginning of the game, 
Everyone has jitters. Everyone has butterflies. There's a lot of, a lot of spectators and all that. But your son Yoshua, right away at the very beginning, fearless, he's bold, bravado, panache. I'm telling the story because it just made me so happy. But I, I was just delighted. Maybe, maybe we're doing something right here. The kid grows up. You have to realize. What do you mean these other, this other school, these kids are so big? You could beat them. You could, you could win. You're a prince. We're princes. We're princesses. There's nothing that we cannot do. We take charge. We could be bold. Take initiative. Be a risk taker. But we have to remember, if we want to lead others, that great power must be directed, must be guided, must be targeted for the benefit of others. Those two are a magical combo. Okay, let's get to our question of the week in the Parsha podcast and in general with all the Torch podcasts. We're trying to get a little smarter, a little smarter, raise our IQ just one or two points every week. And of course, we're trying to raise our Parsha IQ. But we're also trying to raise our general intelligence. Why? Because the Torah is the only thing that we know of, clinically proven, to raise one's intelligence. So we have an idea. And then we have a question. I, Q. Here's the question. It's a fun question. Chapter 2, verse 3 of our book. It tells us of the floating bassinet. Moshe's three months old. They can't keep him home anymore. And his mother makes a box, a wicker box. And she places Moshe in the box and places it in the sea, in the river. And we're told that she, she caulks it, she tars it, she seals it with chemar and zafes. Bitumen, they translate it, and pitch. Here's the question. Why is this important? Why is this germane? Why is this salient? This is like the most unimportant, trivial detail. The material of the waterproofing of this floating bassinet. Why is that necessary? So Rashi, of course, quotes the Talmud that uh, tells us that the foul-smelling Material was on the outside, and the more tolerable smelling material was on the inside, and that's because Moshe, the tzaddik, or the future tzaddik, he shouldn't have to smell something bad. I saw something incredible in the writings of the Gona Vilna. He says that the Hebrew words chemar and zafes, which are these materials, chemar on the inside and zafes on the outside, the gematria, the gematria, the numerical value of chemar is 248, which corresponds to the 248 positive mitzvahs. And there are 365 negative mitzvahs. And how do you spell 365? Shin Samachei. And the expanded gematria of those three letters, Shin Samachei, equals Zephes. Incredible. The inside. The gematria corresponds to 248. The outside. The gematria corresponds to an expanded 365, corresponding to the negative mitzvahs, the prohibitive mitzvahs. There's no part of the Torah that's trivial, that doesn't contain any secrets. But I think there's also a deep insight in this. Torah, mitzvos, they're there to protect us. They're there to prevent us from drowning. And it's comprised of two things, the internal and the external. Our fortress against Destruction, on the outside of it, you have the negative mitzvahs, the prohibitive mitzvahs. And this is things that we don't do. And that keeps those forces away. 
And the positive mitzvos, they're internal and they enrich our life from within. What an incredible idea. Just a one line in the Gona Vilna. Absolute, sheer genius as we have come to expect from him. We're here. It's the book of Exodus. It's Parsha Shmos. And I'm in the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. The website for the Torch Center for Torch is torchweb.org. You can find a link in the description of this podcast and every other podcast that we do here. It's the seventh year of the Parsha podcast. We're up to the book of Exodus. With the help of the Almighty and with your dedicated and committed listenership, I hope you had an incredible week hitherto. I hope it just gets better. It just improves from here on out. Have an incredible day. Fantastic rest of your week. A splendid, superior, elevated, enriching, invigorating Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with the unending help of the Almighty, we'll gather together again next week for the next installment of the Parsha Podcast. My email address is Rabbi Wolby at gmail.com.